You have to go back 30 years to when it was not legal for lesbians to adopt. And so we had to start the adoption process when we decided we wanted to start a family through adoption. The social worker is telling us about all the programs that this various agency has for adoption, the international programs. But here's the situation with foster care. In foster care in the U.S., and this was at the time that, that she, right. she said there were eight times as many Black children as white children in the foster care system. And then once you looked at the Black children who were in the foster care system, there were eight times as many boys as girls. Okay. So, I mean, two different, two different levels we needed to rethink this. If we were willing to adopt a child of color, even a Black child from another country. Why not why from the U.S.? Not, why would we not do this in the U.S.? Sylvia and me. Hi. I'm Sylvia Beckerman. Join me today as I talk to an extraordinary woman who is changing the world by making a difference in her life and the lives of those around her. I'm Fern Johnson, and I've spent my career as a professor specializing in areas related to race and gender. And I'm also the white mother of two adopted African-American sons. This has been an experience that has run over 30 years. And, and I'm Marlene Fine. Um, I'm also a former academic, retired now, and uh, the mother of two adopted African-American sons who Fern and I adopted as infants over 30 years ago. And we are the authors of Let's Talk Race, a guide for white people. So welcome to Sylvia and me. Fern, Marlene, thank you so much um, for being with me here today. And we're going to have quite an interesting conversation. Uh, as you said, you're the parents of two um, African-American boys that you adopted when they were babies 30 years ago. And uh, you just co-authored a book called Let's Talk Race, A Guide for White People. A Guide for White People. Now, can you kind of go back into how you got started even thinking that there was a need to talk about race, whether it be for white people, people of color, just the idea of having to talk about race? Well, over the years, uh, even before we adopted our children, uh, both of us specialized in issues of race as academics. And so we both did research um, alone and together on issues of race. And we also taught lots of classes, did workshops, consulting gigs. And um, we really noticed over the years how difficult it was for white people to talk about race and the variety of ways that we all begin to shut down when that's the topic or we divert attention to something else. Um, we also had the experience over the years of talking with uh, black friends and uh, colleagues who would say, I am so frustrated because white people won't talk to me about race. And they also said, we are so tired of teaching white people about race. And so we really thought it was time for us, meaning us and all white people to stand up and take responsibility. 
you know, over the years, it's always the case that whenever there's a racial crisis, mm -hmm. there are all these calls for conversation about race. And then as soon as the crisis recedes, the conversation stops. And so we really wanted to put together a practical guide. That coupled with the fact that we thought as academics, we knew a whole lot about race. And then we adopted our sons. And that really changed the landscape for us. I mean, the first thing I would say is that, Sylvia, we, we do not know everything about race. And we are always learning. We are always catching ourselves, you know, with something and feeling, wow, how, you know, how could we have missed that? Why didn't we see that? And so much of that is because white people don't need to think about race on a day-to-day -day basis. At least most white people don't. You know, it's just, it's just the normal thing. I mean, I always like to explain this in terms of being a left-hander or a right-hander. So our world is organized for right-handers. You know, I'm a right-hander. I don't have to think about being a right-hander. You know, I pick up, a, you know, a, something, a can opener. I reach across the table at a restaurant and get my, my beverage glass. I don't have to think about it. Marlene, my colleague here and co-writer, happens to be a left-hander. I have watched her knock over glasses at tables. I have watched her not be able to use a can opener. So I mean, this is totally non-political, but I think it gives a good idea of what it is to live in a world in which you either think about race because it affects you every day, which is the case for African-Americans and other BIPOC people, or, you don't have to think about it because you're white. Yeah. But, but, but what I what I want to ask you, I think that was cute about the left-handed thing because I happen to be left-handed, uh, um, and I guess you could say I'm ambidextrous. But I think I just did it because I just never thought about it. In all honesty, the only thing I ever thought about was when I was writing on uh, a chalkboard or writing, the ink used to get all up and down my hand until I saw I had a left-handed teacher in about second or third, about second grade who wrote where it just went, it slanted to the left and that changed everything for me. Yeah. Okay, so you guys, you gals are academics prior to uh, adopting your two boys. Why did you adopt uh, an African-American child and then you adopted another one unless they're twins, which I don't think they are. All right, so why, I know that you just said that you really didn't know how much you didn't know until after you had adopted your sons. Why did you adopt, um, a nine-month child, why did you adopt an African-American child to begin with? Well, you have to go back 30 years to when it was not legal for lesbians to adopt. And so we had to start the adoption process when we decided we wanted to start a family through adoption. Okay. We, we started it by having to investigate avenues independently, so not, not as a couple. And um, we obviously could, um, if we were going to do a domestic adoption, we felt strongly that we were not going to adopt a domestic child 
uh, who was black because the black social workers um, in the United States, the National Association of Black Social Workers at that point believed that the adoption of black children was a form of cultural genocide. And so we strongly wanted to respect that position. Okay. Um, and so we began to look at international adoption, um, which in many ways was close to us. Oh, well, you have to be Catholic. Oh, you have to be married. Oh, <laughs> you know, there were all of these restrictions in place. And so we're exploring these options overseas when Fern, uh, who has also started the adoption process, goes through um, a class that she has to take, that she's required to take as part of the process here in Massachusetts and discovers. Oh, I'll tell this story. All right, let's hear. Mind-blowing. Okay. So I'm sitting in this session with about eight other people and social worker is telling us about all the programs that this various agency has for adoption, the international programs here, there, and you know, various places. And then she said, and then we're, we're going to talk about uh, adoption within the US. So she starts by, by putting up uh, some kind of a chart and it's about foster care. And, you know, she said, now, you know, some of you know a little bit about foster care, but I want to tell you more so that you can understand the situation. You have to be comfortable with whatever choices you're making. But here's the situation with foster care. In foster care in the U.S., and this was at the time that, that she, right. she said there were eight times as many Black children as white children in the foster care system. And then once you looked at the Black children, who were in the foster care system, there were eight times as many boys as girls. Okay. So I mean, two different, two different levels. And she said, I'm not trying to convince anybody to do anything, but as you weigh the various things, just know that, you know, this is what the situation is. Then she gave a bunch of statistics on the probability of various groups that they would be adopted if they were available for adoption. And it was very grim when you got to black boys. So, I mean, my mind is like, a, you know, bouncing around and I'm thinking, wow, this is, uh, this is mind blowing. You know, this is so different from what we've been thinking of, you know, how can I accommodate this? So immediately, you know, I've got to talk to Marlene and we decided that we needed to rethink this. If we were willing, to adopt a child of color, even a black child from another country. Why not why from the US? Not, why would we not do this in the US and balance that with our respect for the black social workers position? And also, I just want to clarify that the number of black children who were in the foster care system was not the result of black families not being willing to adopt. Black families adopt in similar to or higher percentages than white families. It's just that there were so many waiting children and there just weren't enough families to adopt them. And so we really thought about the kind of hypocritical position we had taken and thought that that's insane. Um, we will simply have to learn how to raise these children in a way that we can at least try to give them a healthy racial identity and prepare them for life in a white world. Well, as you said, this was 30 years ago. So you're actually faced with 
a number of difficulties that lay ahead of you. One, you're a white lesbian couple, and I don't believe marriage was legal back 30 years ago. And now on top of that, you're adopting African-American or black children. How did you even think you could handle this? Was it because of your background with academia or was it something that inside of you, you just, um, you wanted children, you wanted to adopt? Uh, so I'll ask you, what gave you that uh, push to go ahead and do this when you were facing so much that 30 years ago, no one in your situation would probably even think of doing because of all, as you've mentioned uh, in your book, barriers, all the barriers that you were going to be facing. I would say, first of all, that we did want to create a family with children, that that was really one of the things that was important. But in terms of who we were going to adopt, once we were entertaining the idea of adopting uh, an African-American child or a black child, um, we talked to every black person, person of color who we knew. Sometimes I felt like we were exploiting them, you know, like to, to get their views about this, you know, did they think we could do this? Should we do this? Um, what did they think was the most important thing we needed to know? if we were going to do this, um, and if they were friends of ours, you know, how, how could we somehow benefit from our friendship with them for them, you know, to, to help us and guide us? Uh, for strangers, you know, can we call you again? Um, you know, <laughs> wh whatever it might be, but we, we, did, we did talk and conversation was key. And I have to say that a lot of things were said about race in those conversations that I had never talked about or had a, a person who was black, for example, talk to me about. And I think that was that was really important. I mean, Marlene might. Yeah, absolutely. From um, things as mundane as, you know, when you have your child, and especially, you know, um, since we knew that we were open to adopting boys, it meant we were most likely going to get um, black boys. Um, you keep their hair. Their hair has to look good all the time. And you begin to explore that and understand culturally how important the keeping of the hair is in black culture in a way that is absolutely almost meaningless to most white people. Um, and, and the kind of historical importance of that and the current day importance of it and learning about the differences in, in, in black hair uh, to issues of should we live in X community or Y community? Well, whatever you decide, you make sure those boys have the best education possible because the best thing you can do to prepare black boys for the future is to ensure that they have really superb educations. Um, and so, you know, we start having these conversations, and these are things that we truly had not thought about before. 
Well, I, I understand the hair, but the education is something that you would want to give your children, no matter who they were, a good education, because education is key to um, you know, people being able to move forward. And it's not just schooling, but it's, it's education, making sure they're informed and, and do have that good you know, kind of uh, part of their upbringing. So how, how old was your first, your oldest son? And then how many years afterwards did you adopt, decide to adopt a second child? Our first son was four weeks old. When we okay. Adopted. So he was a little infant. Mm -hmm. And we adopted his brother two years later and he was four months old. So he was also you know, a, a, a baby, but, but there is a difference between four weeks and four months, but, but yes. you know, they were both, they were both babies. Okay. So, and so they're actually brothers. Well, no, what they, they, yes, they, I mean, this is a sensitive yes. thing with adoption, you know, in terms of how you describe them. They are brothers. They have always been one another's brothers. All right. Are they biologically related? Uh, no, they are not. Okay. So they, you know, but this, yeah, this is an adoption. You know, an adop okay, so I see, I immediately went backwards when you said brother and I wasn't talking in oh. the present. Right. So, right. so it's, no, it, yeah, no, because they I are was, brothers. Right. But when you said that, I thought you were I, talking about, I, you know, when you first adopted yeah. them. Okay. Uh, I right. should have clear. No, that. it's it's okay. It's where my head goes. So, what was one of the first things that you ran into? That's the way I would say it. Um, after adopting, what was what was? I know your your black friends had talked to you. You you tried to get as much information out of them as possible. But what was one of the first things that you realized after adopting that maybe you hadn't been told about? Uh, well, I, I, let me name two things. Uh, one, we were surprised, um, sometimes shocked, uh, by the whites who would quietly ask us when they learned that we had adopted a black child. Um, is he very dark? How dark is he? Um, so we really related to the interview with Meghan Markle and Prince Harry um, because we were asked that question a lot. Uh, the second thing that happened is that we would be out wheeling our son, um, you know, in the carriage, the two of us out, and quite literally, people, strangers on the street would walk up to us and say, Oh, what a lucky baby. And you are such wonderful people. And, you know, we'd sort of look at each other. They don't know us. How does anybody know how wonderful we are? And we're the lucky ones. Why, why is he so particularly lucky? Because we adopted him. Um, and then, you know, we'd say to ourselves, what would happen if you reversed the races and you had two black women wheeling a white baby? And the assumption, of course, would be, they were the nannies out for a stroll with the child they were taking care of. And in fact, a number of years later, a black friend who has a very light-skinned child uh, recounted stories of being out wheeling her son 
and people assumed she was the nanny, not the mother. Uh, so we began to see privilege in a very different way. Privilege in the assumptions that people have is that what you're talking about as far yeah. as privilege goes? Yeah. The perception and the assumption. It's not that somebody has more than someone else. It's just the, the understanding, as I said, the perception of, of how life is for somebody else. Yeah, and you really, have, you really have a combination, I think, in these and a lot of other instances of how we began to see our white privilege, but also how we began to see how stereotyping actually works. You know, that it's, we learn about it and we think we don't do it. It's pretty hard actually for any person not to stereotype because it's an easy way of kind of organizing, well, you know, these people do this and these people do that. But we began to really think about what this meant. So, you know, like the, the issue about how dark are your children? And even the question, oh, are they interracial? It, because somehow there was an assumption there that if the child was interracial, that, I don't know, they were less black or they were more white or they were more like us. I, it was, you know, all of those things probably. Um, and, you know, we've talked to so many people of color, black people especially, who have said, doesn't matter if one of your parents is white and the other one is black. If one of them's black, you're black and you're black in the world and you're treated that way. And it, you know, will make a difference. And it not not always a negative difference, but right. you know about it'll make them. a difference. But it'll make a difference. Um, uh, when our oldest son was about a year, year and a half old, um, it was time for him to get a social security card. So I applied for a card and got a call that I could go down to the local office and pick it up. So it was just the local government office and you walk in, you take a number, you sit and um, you wait. So there I am, a white woman, black child, and um, my number gets called, I walk to the desk and the white woman at the desk, you know, looks up at me, looks at um, our son, and says to me, are you here for your welfare check? Now here I am, I'm a tenured <laughs> college professor, <laughs> you know, and I'm standing there, am I here for my welfare check? Uh, no, I'm here for my son's social security card. But the assumption that a, a woman standing there with a black child must be there for welfare. And it was really for me the first time that I understood what it meant to be stereotyped as somehow inferior. Okay, so you decided to write this book, Let's Talk Race, A Guide for White People. What you've talked about is uh, when you say privilege, the assumptions that people have when they look at you. It's not a question of growing up better or worse or wealthy or poor, it's the assumptions that people make, the perceptions that people have. So what are you hoping, what do you think is the biggest barrier for people to have a conversation? That's a big question and that's right. 
question. How do, how do I eat being think, made? <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, it, we, we wrote the book because we want people to talk more deeply. So I think for many white people, there's a reluctance to talk deeply. You might say, yes, I can talk about race, but if it gets into some area of conflict, you know, we tend to be taught to try to keep things harmonious. Most of us, um, we might be afraid of saying the wrong thing, sounding ignorant, uh, you know, using the wrong word. But I think often when it gets tense in any way, there is reluctance to go further. So conversation just shuts down. So what we've tried to do in this book is to give some guidelines for how to keep that from happening by offering uh, some prompts for people to think about personally to start thinking more deeply about what they've learned about race. And then also some conversation prompts. So if you're together with a group of other white people or a mixed race group, here's a prompt, we can call it a topic. Here's something to get you started and to listen to each other and to sustain that topic, even if it's uncomfortable. Because I think that the general thing, Sylvia, is a, a sense of discomfort. Well, yes, and people generally like to run away from confrontation. They, they you know, nowadays, there is a fear of saying the wrong word because everything has to be politically correct, which is a bunch of bunk these days because we've gotten so politically correct that we don't say anything. Um, right. Seriously, you can't open your mouth without somebody saying you said the wrong word. I don't even know what to use anymore. Um, and it's really, it, it, it's gotten to a point where there is conversation that needs to be had, but there's conversation that has to be smart conversation. Not as you opened up uh, our conversation uh, earlier in saying that, you know, people get riled up and for about a week or two, they're all riled up and then it goes away, whether it be about race or gun control or religion or years and years ago when my parents were younger in their 30s, they were dancing at, at, at a dinner dance and my father passed out. I think he had, uh, he never drinks. And I think he had a, a little taste of something, whatever it was, all of a sudden the men were scared. That happened, that lasted for about a week. And then they went back to doing whatever they want. And that's exactly what we're talking about is the fact that the initial shock is there and then somehow it dies down without the continuation or it escalates into some of the areas that we're in now, which are just awful, they're out of hand. So what would you say to someone, as you said, you have prompts in the book, what is one of the most important prompt? Oh, one of the most important prompts. Um, I don't know that I would point to a particular conversation prompt as okay. most important, but I would say we have some personal prompts in there. 
that ask you to do some exploration of your own thinking, your own ideas. And I think some of those are really important. For example, we ask people to spend some time thinking about the stereotypes they have of African-Americans. And then where did you learn them? Are these things you learned from your family? Are they things you learned in school? Are they things you learned in movies or on television shows? But to really try to unpack where these things come from. Um, we also ask people in um, a chapter in which we talk about uh, the history of enslavement in the United States followed by Reconstruction, the Jim Crow era, and um, look at how these historical moments have in fact informed the racial disparities that exist today. And so we ask people to think about their own experiences in areas like healthcare, and then to um, try to imagine what they know about healthcare as it relates to African Americans, and the same with education and, and the other areas that we cover. So I think those are really important. I would just you know use one example because Maureen mentioned healthcare. We've had so much information during the coronavirus about health disparities and issues related to race and health disparities. So we, we do have a conversation prompt, at least one, I think maybe two, um, that have to do with people talking about their experience and their preferences in healthcare. So, you know, what, kind, what kinds of problems do you worry about in your own healthcare? And, you know, who would you like to see for those particular kinds of problems? And I think one of the things that would emerge in most conversations across, if it was interracial across race, is that the issues that are of concern differ. And secondly, what doctors you would like to see? What, you know, would you like to see people of your own race? Now, we, we discovered, you know, from the time the boys were infants all the way through college, after which we had no control, of course. <laughs> we, didn't have, we didn't have much then either. But, you know, you know finding a, a black doctor, finding a black dermatologist, um, it was almost impossible. Well, you look at the statistics in the United States, and yes, it's almost impossible. You know, so, so these are things that white people usually don't think about. We probably think if we're a woman, you know, you know, want to have a female gynecologist. Now, you know, decades ago, that was not always the possibility, but it you know, certainly is now. So, you know, there, there are issues like that, that, that we want people to try to understand by talking with other people, hearing their stories and sharing their experience. Well, what do your children, what do your boys say? They're grown men now, um, although I have two grown <laughs> yeah. men and, and they, you know, yeah, yeah they're grown yeah. men um, yeah. and they're still our children. So yeah. what, what would they say is the most important thing? What was the hardest thing for them to, to uh, confront or experience? The hardest I don't know that we could answer that for them. I, I will tell you that both of our sons have had, um, uh, both of our sons have had 
uh, direct experience with police, um, both in terms of uh, driving and being stopped driving while black uh, and situations that have escalated. And uh, both of our sons have had other experiences with the police. And I would say that our learning when they were younger, how important it was to tell them how to behave when they were stopped by the police. Um, that was an eye opener for us. We did not know that it was black parents who told us we had to have that conversation. And then having that conversation and how hard it is to have to tell your children that um, and explain to them that they do have to behave uh, in a particular way. Uh, that was very difficult for us. And I think it very frustrating for them to deal with. Yeah, I, I, I don't feel I can speak for them, but I think that they would say that they had, you know, happy childhoods, you know, their, their yeah. friends and mm -hmm. our neighborhoods were, were uh, friendly neighborhoods and there weren't, you know, immediate problems, but they, they would recount, you know, people saying something to them that would be so stereotypical, you know, like one of our sons is tall. Well, of course, in high school, uh, black boy, tall, basketball. Well, he cared less <laughs> about it. He, he didn't have any interest in basketball, even though he's quite athletic, you know, he likes- Doesn't matter, he didn't, he didn't want to play basketball. He didn't, he didn't like basketball. And, you know, there would be things like that or, uh, kids at school and even some teachers would mix up their names, you know, black boy and call one by the other person's name. And so we would hear about this and they wouldn't necessarily, oh, well, I suppose you just saw a black boy and said, but the fact that they would mention it, we thought, hmm, well, they must have thought about that. So I think there were probably many, many more experiences like that that they didn't tell us. Yeah, I, I was thinking about a time when, um, when our boys were in middle school, uh, they went to a private school. And so uh, one night the uh, private school was hosting an event and the event included some hip hop dancers who had come in from Boston. So um, uh, we lived in a suburb, we lived in a suburb. So we're, we're all going to this event together um, and um, the parking lot was very crowded. And so we told the boys to get out, go in and save seats for us. We would get the car parked and meet them there. So they're dressed in their private school uniforms. They've got their blue blazers on, khaki pants, shirt and tie. And um, when we come in, they're sitting in seats. They've saved us two seats, we sit down and they looked at us kind of oddly and we said, what's wrong? And they said, well, we were walking in and these people came up to us and wanted to know if we were the hip hop dancers. Now, <laughs> you know, there they were in the private school uniforms of the private school where all these people were coming for the event. But the assumption was here are two black boys, so they must be the hip hop dancers. Um, and of course, I you mean they weren't and they didn't play basketball. <laughs> for so I think you know, they experience things like that. Fern, Marlene, I think this is a very important conversation um, that needs to be uh, continued to be talked about. 
Um, I know, you know, racial uh, inequality, and it's not just, as we said, it's not the inequality on, on so many levels that people think of, but it starts off with the perception. And um, you've done, it sounds like you've done a great job in, in raising your, your, your two boys. Um, and in actually trying to get people aware of things that you weren't aware of and have learned over these 30 years. And I'm sure there's still more things to learn. Uh, where can uh, people find out more about you? Do you have a website oh, or? Yeah. Yes, we have a website. It's www.letstalkrace.com with no apostrophe in let's. So www.letstalkrace.com. And there's information there about the book, about us. There are resources as well, um, a few other things. And the book could be bought through many independent bookstores and of course, all the large retail right. Um, right. outlets. Ladies, thank you so much. Uh, this has been very interesting. Sylvia, thank you thank so you. much for inviting us. This is really terrific. Yeah, it was really fun to talk to you. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you for joining me today. If you liked what you heard, please share it with another person you think would be interested. And if you haven't already, please subscribe. Join me next week when I talk to another extraordinary, inspiring woman. Today's podcast is sponsored by Upper Deck, the national full-service virtual gym that has reinvented the at-home workout experience. Upper Deck has more than 30 strength and cardio classes a week. Named Best Fitness Club in the Gold Coast for 2020, Upper Deck brings the gym to you with live coaching and motivation. Upper Deck's unique classes are interactive. They have two coaches, one leading your workout and one keeping her eyes on you, providing feedback and encouragement in real time. For a free week of unlimited virtual classes with no strings attached, email info at UpperDeckFitness.com and let Upper Deck know you're a Sylvia and me listener. This has been a Life of Prey production.